Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I'm your host, Trey, and I have with me Dr. Jeff Tompkins, geneticist. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Tompkins. It's great to be here. Good, good. All right. How are we feeling today? Feeling okay. Okay. <laughs> I could have used a little bit more sleep last I, night, but you know, we'll we'll give it a go. That's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens and it'll, it'll be great. All right. So I want to talk to you about biological evidences for creation. There's a lot. Uh, this is going to be actually a two-part series. So for our listeners and viewers, we'll have several of those evidences in this episode, and then we'll have some more in the next episode. So come back for part two. All right. So according to the biblical account uh, and according to ICR's beliefs and the young earth creationist belief, earth should be around 6,000 years old. Uh, that's what we get when we, uh, when we just, from a plain reading of scripture, we get 6,000 years old with life being present just a couple days after the beginning. Am I, am I correct after that? Yeah, so absolutely that's true because the chronologies and genealogies in the Old Testament in the Hebrew scriptures go back to 6,000 years from the present point. So about 6,000 years ago, um, the creation week uh, took place, and that is when all biological life was created uh, during the creation week, about 6,000 years ago. Okay. Well, evolutionists say something entirely different. Uh Evolutionists believe that the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old and that life began about 3.5 billion years ago. Does that seem seem in line with what they're saying now? Yeah, that's uh, still what they're saying. Okay. And, of course, that uh, also presents the big problem of the origins of life. Right, <laughs> where did it come from? 3.5 billion years ago, and they have never solved that or even come close to solving it. And James Tour is a, a specialist in that area, the origin of life, um, and then debunking, you know, the evolutionary claims that somehow life popped into existence magically. Uh, the first biomolecules somehow came together magically. The first cells somehow magically came together. Now, there's no evidence for any of it, even though scientists have tried to create these primitive earth conditions and create these uh, molecules and even cells, there was one guy who actually took a beaker full of proteins and lipids and nucleic acids and thought he could dump them into a mud puddle and, and create a cell. And he was actually surprised he couldn't create a cell. And he was actually a famous scientist uh, that did this. So there is no evidence for the origin of life, but yeah, supposedly it occurred 3.5 billion years ago. Okay. So if life is that old, then we should see evidence of its age, um, whether it's old or whether it's young. I mean, we can see uh, whether something is old or young, right? Biologically speaking. Well, as far as that goes, uh, scientists would probably look at the fossil record. Okay. And, uh, and when that actually started, which would be the Cambrian, maybe a little bit of, of pre-Cambrian, but the boundary is a little bit fuzzy there. Gotcha. But uh, supposedly, yes, and, and that's what really I want to talk about is the problem of the fossils and how they, they speak to a young creation and not an old earth. I think that this is an important topic. Um, it's probably good to lay the groundwork of why we're even talking about this in, in the first place, because if life is as old as the evolutionary theory posits, uh, then I think that that 
allows us to call into question other facets of the Bible. Like if the Bible is wrong about the age of the earth, then who's to say that it's not wrong about everything else, right? Um, but you, what you're saying is that there is evidence that life is young and that that is anathema to what the evolutionary theory states. Yeah, exactly. So let's start, you know, where life first appears, you know, complex life uh, in the fossil record, and that's the Cambrian. Okay. So as creation scientists and uh, also taking into account the creation geology and creation paleontology, we can look at the Cambrian and see life, complex life, appearing suddenly in a huge diversity and array of creatures. But most importantly, regards to the... Um, the age of the earth, we actually see soft tissue in the Cambrian. So we see two worm fossils with pliable uh, material in the, in the worm casings that they, they put these little tubes they built in the sand, the little houses they live in is, is uh, still there. It's still present. It's soft. It's pliable. What's it doing there if it's supposedly, uh, you know, 450 million years old? Right. If it was that old, it would have it would have decayed. I'm assuming. Yeah, it would have completely decayed. But it's exactly what we would find in a global flood because uh, Dr. Clary, who works for ICR, who is a uh, a geologist and actually worked for the big oil company for a while, uh, mapping out geological sequence. He showed that the Cambrian layers were the initial layers laid down in the flood, and so. That's exactly what we ought to see is marine creatures, and that's what we see in the Cambrian is a, a huge diversity of marine creatures, including tube worms that were actually living on the bottom of the ocean. So that's why they appear at the lowest layers of the Cambrian. But think about other creatures uh, as well, like starfish and brittle stars and horseshoe crabs. Um, we see those in the Cambrian, and they're still alive today. I mean, their fossils actually have disappeared for millions of years, but they show up again living, you know, in the oceans uh, today. And so what happened is those creatures were buried initially in the flood. And then as the flood progressed, it began burying creatures uh, in other locations of the ocean. Eventually the floodwaters hit land and started burying land creatures and land plants and things like that. So, uh, but when we look at the fossils, they, they definitely speak to a very young earth and that they were buried about 4,500 years ago in a global flood. Right. And it's not just Cambrian or pre-Cambrian. It's like we have found soft tissue in so many fossils at this point, right? Oh, we found soft tissue in, in virtually every layer of the geologic column. Okay. And in fact, Dr. Brian Thomas has cataloged over 120 uh, papers documenting soft tissue in biomolecules in fossils throughout the geological column. And uh, most of these are secular papers. In fact, I think all, nearly all of them are uh, secular academic papers. They weren't published by creation scientists. They were published by people in the, in the conventional uh, scientific community. Okay. So I guess that brings me to what do those in in the conventional scientific community what do they say about this how do they how do they explain it away or do they even try do they have some sort of uh, I mean you would think I as 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 a creationist if I saw that I'd be like maybe I'm wrong but I'm surely they're not doing that maybe they're not saying oh maybe there it is younger what what are they saying about it. 
Well, really, they're just saying, you know, these are anomalies. Oh, hey, we were wrong. You know, these these molecules and tissues can last for millions of years. Okay. Um, even though, you know, it, it's absurd that they would have actually degraded by then. You know, studies have been done showing how fast uh, proteins degrade, DNA degrades, uh, tissues degrade, and and they don't line up with what uh, we're seeing within the evolutionary a mindset or the evolutionary paradigm of deep time. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. So evidence number one of biological evidence, number one of a young earth is that we have soft tissues and it runs the entire fossil record from what's supposedly the oldest to the newest. Right. So that points to a young earth. Correct. Oh, exactly. And, you know, kind of the rock star of that whole uh, soft tissue biomolecule a discovery movement that's actually still going on and actually picking up steam uh, was the discovery of soft tissue in a T-Rex uh, femur by Mary Schweitzer. Mm-hmm. And actually the Smithsonian called it Mary Schweitzer's dangerous discovery. And <laughs> the reason it was dangerous was because it questioned uh, the deep time of evolution. Right. But she actually found blood vessels and soft, uh, stretchy uh, tissue, collagen proteins, um, even found blood cells inside blood vessels that were intact. And this is all published in the in the scientific uh, literature, the conventional secular literature that's out there. And so that was probably the 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 most uh, widely known example of it. But actually, uh, as I said, there's been over one hundred and twenty papers published in that particular area. And most of them don't get a whole lot of press. Of course, they're not for, as exciting. For obvious reasons, because <laughs> yes. they call into question the evolutionary paradigm. Okay. Well, that's good. So viewers, listeners, biological evidence one, if you're arguing with your friends, don't argue with your friends about this like so adamantly. But if they have questions, you can point them to this and be like, hey, there's soft tissue in dinosaur fossils. I know a lot of people don't know about that. Okay. Uh, biological evidence number two. Uh, I have read that they've actually been able to find, um, this is kind of similar, I think, to the the biomolecules and the soft tissues. Uh, but I read that there was actually, they're able to extract microorganisms and uh, bacteria from amber uh, and other materials. And that actually uh, yeast was extracted from amber and used to brew beer. So if it was used to brew beer, it had to be uh, living yeast, right? Because of the chemical reaction. So if if we can find even like living bacteria that are supposed to be millions of years old, I feel like that kind of calls into question how old they're supposed to be, right? Oh, exactly. So the yeast uh, that they recovered was about 40 million years old. Okay. And one of the scientists actually uh, took one of those strains and created his own line of beer that he used. <laughs> so he used the yeast uh, to actually brew beer, and it, it was kind of a novelty. And so, yeah, so why is the yeast alive and doing well and fine? So yeast is actually kind of a complex microbe. Uh, it's a eukaryotic microbe. What uh, does that mean? It means it has a nucleus okay. and it has chromosomes like, uh, like say, plants and animals. I, of course, knew that. I was just asking for everybody right. else. <laughs> so anyways, that, that's pretty exciting. That was uh, evolutionists claim that, that those finds were about 40 million years old, which is pretty old. And obviously yeah. the 
what's the yeast doing alive and well um, in those in those amber fossils? But they've actually found bacteria in salt inclusions in uh, sedimentary rocks, which makes a lot of sense because the the flood was a marine flood. It involved the oceans. Uh, and that's why we see ocean creatures um, at literally every level of the fossil record. Ocean creatures actually mixed in uh, with land creatures. You know, sharks are buried with uh, dinosaurs. <laughs> that's just one example of many. We see seashells at almost every level uh, of the geological column. On top of Mount Everest or something, right? right? And yeah. so, so marine mixing was just a, a fact of the global flood. So not only okay. are creatures being buried sequentially, uh, based on on where they live, we call it ecological zonation. But you're getting marine mixing going on. So, anyways, back to uh, the bacteria. So, so these bacteria were found in salt inclusions, which is just basically marine water uh, pockets in the sedimentary rocks uh, that's still present. And they pulled these bacteria out and were able to reculture them, and they basically were alive and well. And they were considered to be 250 million years old. Wow. So how are bacteria living 250 million years um, in these salt inclusions? Well, it, it doesn't really make any sense. But if, if you look at the global flood where they were buried about 4,500 years ago, it, it makes perfect sense. So for reference, how long would a typical, I'm sure it varies, but how long would a typical bacteria survive? Well, bacteria are pretty diverse and they're pretty hardy. Uh, at least certain types are very hardy and tough. So I, I can't really answer that uh, directly, okay. but, but 250 million years is really pushing, beyond. Is pushing the <laughs> spectrum okay. for these, these bacteria to be alive and well. Okay. So what do they say about these bacteria and this yeast? How do, how do evolutionists uh, try to explain this away we'll say i don't know that they have but once again they say oh it's an anomaly i guess we were wrong um i guess these these creatures can live for millions of years um in these in these fossils and so the problem is we're dealing with you know a presuppositional worldview so right. if your worldview is you know there is no god or, or that we all evolved from pond scum um you know, it doesn't matter what the evidence says. You're you're just going to to go with the flow and and uh, call it an anomaly or or whatever. So, you know, we've reached out on college campuses uh, quite a bit the past few years here at ICR and talked with lots of students and faculty. And you know, when someone is set in their ways and their 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 worldview is is evolutionary and anti God, it unless the Lord really moves upon them and draws them and opens their eyes, it's very difficult to, uh, to get through. Right. Because you think that at some point, eventually they would say, Oh, there's so many anomalies. Maybe, maybe something's wrong with our general belief system. Right. Well, exactly. And I, we're seeing the same thing in the evolutionary uh, community as far as the the evolutionists that are trying to put a model of evolution out there. And so there's been this huge uh, schism, if you will, because there's many evolutionists now are saying, you know, mutation selection, it's a, it's a failed paradigm. We don't see evidence of it. Uh, we see all this amazing evidence of creatures being driven by internal 
systems, they respond to their environment and they adapt accordingly. Um, and, but yet we don't want to believe in a creator. We just need more data is what they mm -hmm. say. Um, and, or we need an extended evolutionary synthesis. And uh, actually, there's a website called, I think it's called the third way of evolution.org, where it lists gobs of scientists. I don't know how many, but it's got one page on the website where it's just scientist after scientist signing on to this agenda uh, to where they think they need to find uh, some way out of the fix that they're in because mm -hmm. natural selection and mutation is not the answer, obviously. Gotcha. It's not working. It's not working, but yet they won't, at the, on the other hand, acknowledge that there is a creator that created everything. Okay. Well. And it's that it's the power of a, of a worldview, really, mm -hmm. you know. They're uh, locked in. They're locked in. And I, I worked at uh, a major university for uh, almost 20 years. And, uh, you know, I know how people in academia think. And they are literally locked in. It's like a religion uh, to them. Mm -hmm. It. It literally is. It's the religion of evolution, and it doesn't matter how much evidence there is against it. They're locked into their system. This has been a lot of uh, heavy science, and uh, I'd like to just take a step back. Let's take a breath, and let's have our random science question of the day, okay? All right. All right. We'll give it a go. We'll give it a go. Okay. I know that everyone has this question. I know I had this question when I was a little kid, when I first saw Jurassic Park. So uh, this is this is going to be, I'm gonna take whatever you say as gospel. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, here's the question. Is it possible to clone dinosaurs from DNA like in Jurassic Park? And if it's not possible now, uh, would it be possible in the future, seeing as how we can clone like sheep and other living creatures today, um, sort of, uh, your answer? Well, the problem is um, DNA in dinosaur fossils, it is present. Uh, they have proved that there is chromatin uh, material in there, which is uh, chromosomal material. In dinosaur fossils, actually, I think Mary Schweitzer was the one that did that. She developed antibodies that, that lit up DNA in dinosaur fossils. But the problem is it's very degraded. It's all broken up and, and busted up. And so that's a huge problem. So you can't clone anything where you've got all these little fragments. And you don't know how to put them back together. Um, I guess you could do DNA sequencing on it, although evolutionists won't sequence dinosaur DNA because I think it would make them look bad. Um, even though it's there, they won't, they won't sequence it. But uh, the problem is it's all busted up. And so how do you put it back together to create, you know, real dinosaur chromosomes? And in cloning, you know, you need living creatures. So you need a fertilized egg uh, from a certain creature and then you pull the nucleus out of that fertilized egg and then you take uh, the nucleus from another creature of the same uh, kind or species. Um, I'm not saying species is, is the definition of kind, but right. it has to be very closely um, related. And okay. then you take the nucleus out of the, it's called a somatic cell, like a lung cell or whatever. And you stick that into the, uh, the egg where you pulled the nucleus out of the enucleated egg. 
fertilized egg, and you stick that other nucleus in there from the other. So that's how they clone sheep, for example. Um, and so you can't do that, obviously, with creatures that are fossilized and their DNA is all fragmented. And, and so it's, it's impossible to do. Now, with the uh, woolly mammoth, they are attempting to do something, but it's not necessarily cloning. So because the woolly mammoth uh, genome is essentially an elephant genome, they're trying to take woolly mammoth uh, DNA genes and then uh, clone the, or not clone those, but, but put those into a living elephant genome. Mm. It did not know that. And so, <laughs> yes. And so it's not really cloning, uh, so to speak. So they have, they have technology now that's, it's cut and paste. It's called the CRISPR CAS, uh, system of genome modification. And so they're trying to insert a woolly mammoth DNA into a modern elephant genome, just snippet by snippet, you know, replacing genes. And, but really it's, it's, it's the same genome. They're just trying to get woolly mammoth variants of certain genes and put them into a modern uh, elephant genome. Okay. But it's not cloning. So, not cloning. Yeah, I don't really see that happening uh, okay. at any point in the near future. Okay. Sorry, guys. No Jurassic Park, uh, although that's probably a good thing considering what happened in the movies. Okay. Well, they, I'll tell you how they uh, claim they did it in the movie. They, okay. They claim they used uh, frog DNA to, to, to kind of stitch together all the dinosaur DNA fragments. So that's... I think that was actually in the first Jurassic Park mm -hmm. movie. They they promoted that idea, but so probably not possible. It no, it no. was just pure fiction. Okay, okay, good to know. All right, well, thank you for uh, bearing with my ridiculous question. Uh, it the answer was far more interesting than I anticipated. I didn't know they were doing that with the woolly mammoths. So uh, that'll be interesting to see if we start having some woolly mammoth variants of elephants walking around at some point in the not too distant future. So, uh, but we'll get back to the topic at hand. Um, so we have so far two biological evidences of creation uh, for a young earth. We have the soft tissues and biomolecules in fossils, and we have the ancient microbes like yeast and right. bacteria, etc. cetera. Uh, so the third one is a little bit different. Um, let's talk a little bit about the degeneration of the human genome. We know that with like each generation, they say that there's like a hundred mutations between like each, between parent and child. I, I don't know the specifics, but I know that there are more mutations and from my understanding, they're not good. So can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. So John Sanford has actually modeled, uh, the uh, the human genome, and he is he basically said, okay, I'll concede uh, to all the evolutionary uh, paradigms in this theoretical model. You know, he basically said, okay, I'll I'll use the mutation selection uh, model, and then the model also the model of what they call neutral evolution, the neutral model of evolution. Suffice it to say, John Sanford basically used the, the evolutionary paradigm in a computer model and showed that uh, it was a failure and that, uh, that essentially these uh, bad mutations could not be removed or these neutral mutations could not be removed uh, with theoretical models of selection. 
So really, having said all that, basically the human genome is is devolving based on those computer models that John Sanford and his uh, computer scientists and statisticians put together and published numerous papers, including papers in secular journals. And so he showed that, that really evolution was a failed system and that the human genome was devolving over time. Well, that's all fine and good, uh, but that's just theoretical computer modeling. But what really got me excited was two papers that were published in 2012. And these papers sequenced the protein coding regions of humans, um, thousands of humans in North America and Europe, two different papers. One was published in Nature, the other in Science. And so these were top-tier uh, journals. Mm -hmm. And so they call these protein uh, coding segments of the human genome exomes. And so they sequenced the exomes of thousands of people and they looked uh, at those DNA sequences and found that over 80% of the mutations in those exomes that they called rare variants or rare variations uh, were, were not good. They were associated with heart disease, with diabetes, with cancer, all sorts of human ailments and, and health problems. So in other words, mutations in these protein coding regions uh, were for the most part very detrimental Although because you have two sets of chromosomes, a lot of times, you know, the, the good gene on the other chromosome compensates for the, the bad gene on the other one. So anyways, while these mutations were associated with, with uh, bad health, <laughs> obviously the people were still alive. But anyways, they actually modeled these mutations using a population uh, demographics model that was very realistic. They didn't use their standard evolutionary models that were calibrated with millions of years or deep time. They actually looked at how fast uh, populations grow, the, the generation times of people, and, and they used actual realistic, you know, global demographic data and then put that model of variation within these protein coding regions into that model. And they literally said that the human genome based on the, the rare variants that they saw, it was only 5,000 to 10,000 years old. Mm. Which fits in with what we and that, well, see in the Bible. Yeah, right? what's crazy is that they claim before that it just flatlined. Mm. Well, I about fell out of my chair in my office when I read these papers. Because, I think I heard that. No. Yeah, <laughs> because it's like, you know, that, that fits perfectly with people descending from three breeding couples that survived the flood, you know, right. Noah's sons and their three sons and their wives. Mm -hmm. And so the variation that we see actually in the human genome, the real empirical variation points directly uh, to a time frame uh, of the global flood. And there's been other studies that have been done. Robert Carter, uh, a, a geneticist, has actually looked at the mitochondrial DNA. So outside the nucleus, you have these little energy factories called mitochondria. And each one of those has its own piece of circular DNA. Uh, it's about 15,000 DNA letters long. And you could actually look at the variation in the mitochondrial DNA as well. And you can use empirical models and, and see how old the mitochondrial genome is. Robert Carter has shown that it's about 6,000 years old. So that would be um, the ancestral Eve genome because we inherit our mitochondria in our cells from our mothers. Mm. And we know 
from Scripture who that mother was. Exactly. Yeah. And and what's really interesting is, is that in the, um, in the late 1990s, there was a secular conventional study done uh, by scientists that actually looked uh, at the variation in the mitochondrial genome, and they said that the, <laughs> the mitochondrial genome, based on their empirical data, they, now they didn't do all the, the evolutionary calibration that, that's very common. They said also that the, that the mitochondrial genome was about 7,000 years old. Close enough. Right. And, of course, <laughs> it caused all kinds of backlash. Right. And uh, I think it was published in Sciences where that was published. And then you, after that, all the evolutionists began freaking out and, and sending letters into the editor saying, this, is, this can't be, this can't be so. Hmm. Um, but it, it's hard data. It's empirical data. And, uh, and it's real. And yeah. so, yeah, the, 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 the science we're getting out of the human genome or the mitochondrial genome uh, is pointing to a biblical timeline. And I've actually published articles on this where I list all of the, the studies and the papers and things. For so. sure. Well, as a small aside to that, before we close, I, I've, I'm curious. Maybe this is a little bit of a dark question. But if our genome is, quote-unquote, devolving, um, how much longer does the human race have, theoretically? Well, some evolutionists have have commented that they're surprised we're not extinct. Okay. Um, because we are building up mutations over time. Uh, the human genome is not evolving and getting better. It's devolving and losing information, and information is becoming more and more corrupt as humanity uh, progresses down the timeline of history. And so, but you also have to remember that God has put a lot of mechanisms in our genome uh, to repair and to edit and to keep things uh, functioning. So in, in computer science, you know, we call the, these systems fault tolerance. Okay. So in other words, you have backup systems that, that will keep your computer network going in case of some crisis. You know, maybe you lose some servers or whatever. Um, so the human genome does have a lot of, of fault tolerance uh, machinery and programming and things in it to, to keep it moving along despite the, the degeneration that we're seeing. So, you know, it's hard to say how long we have. Um, but biologically, but we're not biologically speaking, <laughs> right. you know, we, could, we could make some eschatological uh, comments. <laughs> That's a different that, podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Uh, thank you for answering that question. I was just curious. Okay. Um, let's take these three biological evidences. We have soft tissues, uh, ancient microbes, and the degeneration of the human genome. Right. Uh, we want to make sure that our viewers and listeners are well educated. Uh, and so, I know that there have been in the past, historically, there have been some uh, creation arguments that we just don't use today. We either found out that they were incorrect or we were, you know, not fully informed on anything. Uh, have you heard any uh, faulty creationist arguments on any one of these topics that you would just recommend that our viewers and listeners not use? No, I think uh, all three that we've discussed today are valid. Okay. Uh, they're solid. Um, they're supported by uh, conventional science published in conventional scientific journals, or some people use the term secular, right. uh, non-Christian or non-creationist journals. Uh, most of this information has been published in 
Um, it didn't necessarily make the headlines. Some of it did. Um, but we have discussed it in our writings. We have cited uh, these publications and then uh, digested the material down to where, you know, it's, it's kind of at a lay level where, right. where people can understand it. So I've got a number of uh, articles touching on these uh, topics that we've discussed today. Okay. So we have free reign to use these and arguments going yes. forward. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Well, uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, of course, this is part one, so we are about to, uh, a little behind the scenes, we're about to record part two, but for our viewers and listeners, we urge you to stick around uh, and listen to some more biological evidences for Young Earth. Thank you all so much for being here and for watching and listening. Uh, we encourage you to like, subscribe, send this to a friend, send this to your family, share it on Facebook or whatever your social media of choice is. Uh, but we'll see you on the next episode of the creation podcast and y'all have a wonderful day.